you can open in your Bible to John 3.16, and I want to mention, uh, I want to remind us, this is maybe a given, but I just wanted to say it because people have asked me from time to time when we cover something maybe difficult or um, confusing in the Bible, like, why do you pick that text? Like, why did you pick that text? Um, you know, what? one of the things we believe is that the Bible was written by God through human instruments, and we believe God put it together uh, specifically and beautifully and to be read like a book. Uh, imagine if someone wrote you a letter, and what you did every morning is you didn't read the letter, you just kind of like randomly you put your finger in, like read a sentence and thought, oh, that's so good, and then you put the letter away. You know, that, that's okay, but... Um, it would make more sense maybe to begin at the beginning and read through to the end to get the sense. And so that's what we do on Sunday mornings. It's uh, called expository preaching where we pick a book of the Bible and we work through it um, slowly, fast, whatever it is. We want to just get the sense of what God has to say. And so one of the things that does is it keeps us um, from skipping stuff that we would rather not hear. And there's plenty of that in the Bible. Uh, And another thing it does is we just get the, the... like the, the heart and mind of God from start to finish. And so that's what we're doing. And one of the gifts, though, is we get to come on verses like we do this morning, John 3.16. Honestly, it's like, no pressure, John 3.16. What do you say about John 3.16? And I just want to let you know this. This week, this has been the richest, uh, most soul-satisfying time I have ever spent preparing for a sermon. And honestly, I was dreading, like, how do you preach John 3.16? Everyone knows John. Just, just skip it. Let's move on. And so my plan was to do a whole chunk. And as I just studied this verse, I couldn't get past it. Um, and so I'm just so excited to together m- meditate on the love of God. And that's what we're going to do this morning. So we're just going to read that verse. Uh, we'll pray. And then we're just going to hear how much God loves us. That's going to be good. All right. John 3.16. I'm reading out of the ESV, and it says this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God, we thank you for your love this morning. Lord, you tell us that your love surpasses knowledge. There is no one in here who has tasted all there is to taste or who has pondered all there is to ponder, who has learned all there is to learn about your great love for us. And Holy Spirit, I thank you that your word is alive and active. And so I pray that if this is the first time we've heard this verse or the hundredth time, Lord, would, would your spirit make this powerful, powerful verse alive and active to our hearts and our minds and our souls and our lives and our church and this community and the nations? God, would we right now just, like Mary, just sit at your feet and hear your words that you love us, that you came for us, you gave your life as a sacrifice for our sin and the sins of the world. Please, Lord, would you make your word fresh? Would we just together, like, just drink from your word this morning? 
in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> well, about 150 years ago, there's a well-known pastor and evangelist named D.L. Moody. Maybe you've heard of him. And he was visiting Ireland, okay? He was, his church was in Chicago. He was visiting Ireland. And in Ireland, he met this young kind of fiery preacher named Henry Morehouse. And Henry Morehouse was like talking to him and he was a bold guy. And he was like, you know, hey, Dwight, uh, how about I come over to Chicago and I'll preach in your church? Like, who does that? Who invites yourself to preach at someone else's church? And uh, Dwight was taken aback and he, he, he figured that's not gonna happen. And he's like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. Uh, so anyways, that, that passed. And a few months later, Moody was preparing to be gone for the weekend for a series of uh, evangelistic meetings. And he gets a telegram from Morehouse saying, in New York, be in Chicago Sunday. And he's thinking, okay, I told him he could preach and I'm gonna be gone and I've never heard him preach. And he's like this wild young guy. And so he told his wife and his elders, he's like, well, I feel like I have to honor my word. Let him preach. Uh, if, he, if he's any good, you know, you can let him preach the evening service and we'll just see how it goes. And so he leaves and he comes back home and he talks to his wife and he's like, so how was, how was the kid? And she's like, you know what? He's a better preacher than you. And, and he said, okay, okay, well, why is that? And she said, well, he doesn't preach like you do. He tells sinners God loves them. And Moody said, at that time, Moody's doctrine wasn't quite there. And he said, well, no, that's not true. Look what these verses say. God doesn't love sinners. And she said, well, why don't you come here for yourself? He's been preaching every night from your pulpit all week. And he says, okay. Uh, so he goes to his own church and listens to this young man. And this is what Moody uh, went on to say later. I never knew up to that time that God loved us so much. This heart of mine began to thaw out. I could not keep back the tears. I just drank it in. And the text that Morehouse chose for Sunday morning and Sunday evening and Monday evening and Tuesday evening, he preached on John 3.16 the entire week and completely changed the heart of this evangelist who would go on to be used by God to tell the world that God loves them. Now this morning, we get to feast on what is truly the heart of the Bible, the love of God. In our text, John 3.16, is actually the first time the author John uses the word love in his gospel, and it will become a central theme in the gospel of John, in the letters of John, even in Revelation. The love of God is, is a, becomes a central theme, and this is the first time John uses that word love. Martin Luther calls John 3.16 the Bible in miniature. So he's just like the whole Bible in one verse. And so what we're going to do, we're going to just chew on this uh, verse phrase by phrase, and we're just going to together just be refreshed uh, as we hear about the love of God. So our text begins with these two words, for God. And what that says about the love of God is this, it's a God-sized love. Our text begins with the infinite one. Let it sink in that the size and quality of the love of God is in direct proportion to God himself. And as we grow in our understanding of the love of God, let it sink in that you will never get there. 
in a million years from now, you will be growing in your grasp of the love of God. We learn in Ephesians and as we pray that uh, God's love surpasses knowledge. Ephesians 1 says God's love extends to eternity past. Before he created the world, he loved you. And it says it extends into eternity future, that he will continue to love you forever. Paul says in Romans 8 that the love of God is a powerful love, that nothing can separate you from the love of God. No person, not Satan, not death can separate you from the love of God. In Malachi 3.6, we, we read, God says, I do not change. Therefore, his love for you does not change. Listen to these words by a 17th century pastor speaking on the love of God. He says this, though we change every day, yet his love does not change. If anything in us or on our part could stop God loving us, then he would long ago have turned away from us. It is because his love is fixed and unchangeable that the father shows infinite patience and forbearance. If his love was not unchangeable, we would perish. But God doesn't change, and his love for you doesn't change. He just keeps on loving you. Uh, There's a story in the Old Testament about a prophet named Hosea, and God, uh, he made prophets do crazy stuff. And he said, do you know, Hosea, you're going to be like an object lesson for my people. I want you to go marry a prostitute. And what you're going to say to, pe- to, to my people is they're like, a, they're like that. They're like a prostitute. They have gone after other gods. And I want you to marry that prostitute. And she's going to cheat on you. And you're going to have kids with her, but she's going to cheat on you. And, and then it climaxes at this point where Hosea's wife essentially sells herself off to become a, a, a slave prostitute, and she's in the market. Now, slaves, women slaves at that time were sold naked. And so he would walk in public with his naked prostitute wife, and he would purchase her back. And then he says, I want you to tell my people I love them like that. No matter what they do, I love them. My steadfast love endures forever. The love of God is a perfect holy, incomparable love. And then our text goes on, for God so loved. And what that means is it's the love of God's a specific love. You may have a footnote in your Bible that that says, that translates the beginning of John 3.16, for this is how God loved the world. When we read so in John 3.16, it's not so much that he loved you so much, it's how he loved you. God loved you in this way. How did God love you? And the point is that the love of God is not just a general, non-defined, kind of like touchy-feely emotion towards you. That's not the love of God. God specifically loved you a certain way. God's love is defined for you. We don't have the right to define God's love however we want to define God's love. We see the love of God because he loved us in this way. The love of God is specific. And how did he love you? He has sent his son for you. It is a specific 
love. How do I know God loves me? Well, John 3, 16, he loved you in this way. He sent Jesus for you. And I want to read just two verses for us about the specific love of God. The first is 1 John 4, 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And then look what Jesus says in John 15, 13. This is in the NLT. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. Listen, God's love is not just an emotion towards you. He laid his life down for you. That's a specific love, a specific love. The next phrase goes on to say, for God so loved the world. And what that says about God's love is it's a sweeping love. This, this is a provocative statement, the world. Uh, side note here, it's not entirely clear if John 3.16 was spoken by Jesus to Nicodemus, or if the quotation of their conversation ends at verse 15, and now John, the apostle, is commenting, is expanding on that conversation. So it's not entirely, we're not entirely sure who said these words, but either way, the Holy Spirit breathed them, and they are scripture. And either way, the, the, the phrase, the world, is provocative for a couple of reasons. Number one, The world is not a friendly term in the Bible or the gospel of John uh, or in any of John's writings in particular. You may have verses that come to mind that says things like, do not love the world or the things in the world. Friendship with the world is to be an enemy with God. The, The Bible generally speaks of the world as the collective fallen state of humanity. The Bible doesn't speak well of the world, so to speak. And yet, the incredible thing of the love of God is he looks at the world, at rebellious sinners. He looks at bad people, people like you and me and our neighbors, and he loves us. That's shocking. This should shock us, and it would shock the readers. God loves the world that's what D.L. Moody was talking. Really? God loves sinners? I mean, he loves his children. Does God really love them? And that is exactly what John 3, 16 says. Yes, God even loves the world. While we were still sinners, enemies of God, children of wrath, God loves us. And he showed that love by giving us his son. And Jesus goes on to say, listen, I didn't come for righteous people. I came for sinners. That's who I love. Sinners to call them to repentance. Let that sink in that God's love is not like human love. Listen, we love something or someone if it's lovely. That's how we love. I love good things, lovely things. Uh, This week, I, I read a story of a pastor who was, was telling about this memory he had of his little daughter, and she was such a beautiful, lovely little girl, and she wore her dresses, and she had her hair, you know, all cute, and everywhere they went, people were like, oh, isn't she lovely? She's such a beautiful little girl. And then she got in an accident, and for a few weeks, her face was swollen and bruised, and he said people literally gasped and, like, were repulsed visibly by her in public. 
And his point is, that's how the world loves. Yeah, they'll love you if you're lovely. But if, if your face is swollen, sigh, like I, I can't handle that. That's how the world loves. God does not love like that. He sees you at your worst and he loves you. He sees the world in our rebellion and pride and stubbornness and he loves them. When we read God so loved the world, it is not that the world is so big, that's incredible, but it's that the world is so bad, that's incredible. God loves the world and yet he loves the world enough to send his son. And there's another shocking element to this phrase. It would be shocking to the ears of a Jew. Remember, Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus, a Jewish ruler and teacher, and maybe the failure, if not the second great failure of the Jews in the Old Testament, was they thought God only loved them. The love of God was for them. It was not for the world, it was for them. That is the entire theme of the book of Jonah. And God tells Jonah, Jonah, I want to send you to the world, to the nations, and call them back to me to repentance. And Jonah was like, I don't want to go. We Jews are proud of our identity. We're the chosen ones of God. And Jonah even says, I knew you would save them because you're gracious. You see, the Jews had this small view of God's love. It is only for us. And yet the God of the Bible has always expressed his love for the nations, every tribe and tongue, people different than us, people outside of this room. Uh, One pastor, Leon Morris, explains this. It is a distinctly Christian idea that God's love is wide enough to embrace all people. His love is not confined to any national group or spiritual elite. You guys, God loves you. No matter where you are or what you have done, no matter your ethnicity or your propensities or your temptations, he loves you. He loves you. David expresses this kind of love of God in Psalm 145, verses eight and nine. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Hear this. The Lord is good to reality carpenteria, to all. And his mercy is over all that he has made. If you have been made by God, he is merciful to you. His mercy covers you. That is his heart towards all he has made. He is merciful. And so every person who has ever lived receives this mercy and compassion from God. And every person who hears John 3.16 has a genuine invitation to receive the love of God. So the love of God is, is God-sized, it's specific, it's sweeping. And then the, the, the verse goes on to say this, for God so loved the world, he gave. The love of God is a sacrificial love. You may maybe have heard this in Greek. Uh, there are four words for love. 
The first word is storge, which is like family love. It's kind of like, I have to love you because like we're family. Then there's eros, which is romantic love. Then there's phylos, which is like a friendship. It's an attractional love. So I like that. I like you. We're attracted. We get along. And then there's agape, which is almost the opposite of phylos. It's a giving love, a sacrificial love. I don't love you because you're attractive. I love you because I want to sacrifice myself for you. And the word used in Greek in John 3.16 is agape, sacrificial, a self-giving love love. God is not just attracted to you. He's not just stuck with you because he's God and you're like, you're, you're supposed to be compassionate. It's not a selfish love where he wants to like use you. The love of God is a giving, sacrificial love. It cost him something. Theologian J.I. Packer states that you can measure someone's love by how much they give. Now, what did God give to display his love? What sacrifice did God make? And so the next phrase says, he gave his only son. That means God's love is a supremely valuable love. Any parent in this room knows the supreme worth of one's own child. I have a son and nothing moves my heart like my son. Nothing softens me like him. Nothing makes me laugh like him. And the phrase, the phrase that God would give his only son, if it's genuinely being thought about by a parent, it should just like rip your heart. I I genuinely cannot fathom it. I can't do it. I, I don't know if I would do it. And that phrase, gave his only son, would actually evoke this Old Testament uh, memory to to the Jew. And, And that phrase is used by God in Genesis chapter 22. And I want you, if you can, to briefly turn there. I want to read a few verses from this story out of Genesis 22. We're going to read this if you're in the reading plan think we're going to read this maybe Tuesday. So we've been following Abraham, and he's an old guy, and he doesn't have a son. And God promised him a son. It's been 25 years. He's still waiting on a son. God finally gives him a son, his only son, a firstborn son, Isaac. And we're just going to read a few verses out of Genesis 22. Uh, let's read verses 1 through 3. It says this. <coughs> After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Jump ahead to verse six. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac 
his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And then jump down to verse 9. I'll read a few more. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order, in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. You see, this story is testing Abraham's fear of God. Would he put God above everything else, the most precious thing that matters to him? And yet that was actually more in line with the way pagans worshiped their gods. They sacrificed their children. And right before Abraham was going to do it, God stopped him. And he said, no, Abraham, that's not how I am to be worshiped. You see, your son wouldn't be enough. Only one son, only one sacrifice could ever be enough for your sin and the sins of the world, and that's my own son. And on the mount of the Lord, in fact, in that very same place, Mount Moriah, the Lord God sacrificed his own son for us. God did not withhold his son, his very own son, that we could receive the love of God. And it's important in case you're, you're making connections in your mind, like, wait, so Jesus was like Isaac and was like, what are you doing, Father? We have to have a higher view of Jesus. Remember that Jesus was not like us. Jesus is God. And as God the Father offered God the Son, what that is saying is God offered himself. There is one God. In the mystery of the Trinity, it blows our mind, but as Jesus offered his life, it was God offering himself, his own life. Jesus says, no one takes my life. I lay it down on my own accord. And so what no human parent could do for others to give their child, God himself lays down his own son, which was God to display the sacrificial, the supremely valuable sacrifice to display the love of God for us. And so the love of God is God-sized, it's specific, it's sweeping, it was sacrificial, there was nothing more valuable than it. And then the verse goes on to say that whoever believes. What that says about the love of God is this. It's a simple love. Let, just let it for a moment sink in that the God of the universe has left heaven, 
lived a perfect life, offered his life as a sacrifice to receive the wrath of God in your place for your sins, died, rose again, is seated in heaven, and the one thing you must do is receive it. That's what you got to do. What do you got to do? You got to travel across the world on this pilgrimage and pray five times a day and balance the scales and be more good than bad. Try really hard. No, you receive, you believe, you believe that that love is for you. We, we, we can't complicate what God has made simple. To believe in Jesus is to receive the love of God. Another pastor, J.C. Ryle, puts it like this. Let us beware of supposing that justifying faith is anything more than a sinner's simple trust in a Savior. That's it. A sinner's simple trust. You want to receive the love of God? Receive it. That's it. That's it. God made it simple. Will you believe? And to believe is to be born again and to be changed radically in our nature. Uh, there's, a, there's a story of a famous, somewhat controversial theologian named Karl Barth. He wrote his, his systematic theology, is 14 volumes. He's written all kinds of just literally millions of words. And one day he was in a Q&A at a college, and this one student asked him, this brilliant man, what is the greatest thought that has ever passed through your mind? And so he just stops, and he's, he's thinking, and he's, you know, just all the thoughts he's ever thought go passing through his mind. And then he, he, he looks up and he says this, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. He doesn't laugh. He was serious. That is the greatest thought that has ever passed through his mind. That is the greatest thought that may pass through anyone's mind. It is so simple and yet so foundational to have a relationship with the God of the universe. Do you believe this simple truth that God loves you, sent his son for you? Do you believe it? Have you, re- have you received this love? It's for you, whoever believes. And the verse goes on, for God so loved the world that whoever believes, and then it says, in him. And that means the love of God is a singular love. Listen, the love of God is infinite in its size. It's sweeping to every person and every nation. It was supremely valuable and sacrificial, and yet there is only one way to get it. It is infinitely wide, and yet so singularly received. There is no other way to receive the love of God than the man, Jesus Christ. There's no other way. And listen, a lot of people like half of that verse. But the only way to be saved and forgiven and have eternal life is in faith in the person, Jesus Christ. It is beyond broad, and yet it is that specific. 
faith in Jesus. There's no other way. There's no other way. This should motivate us. People need to know the love of God. They need to know Jesus. And you know, this is um, debated from time to time by people who uh, want to be smarter than the Bible. And they say, well, does it really mean? And Jesus, you know, maybe they don't need to know Jesus. Maybe, you know, blah, 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 blah. And, and, and what we, we forget is our desperate state before God. The question is not why God is their only one way. Do you know what the question is? Why is there a way? That's the question. That is what should shock us. There's a way for me in my sin to be made right with God. There's a way. There's a door into the kingdom of God. Thank you, God. There's a way. Who are we to tell God I want another way. There is a way. God's own son sent on the cross to die for your sins and the sins of the world. And if people would believe in him, they would be saved. It is singular. It's, it's exclusive. It's Jesus. It matters that it's Jesus. And then the, the verse goes on. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish. And what that means is that God's love is a saving love. Uh, next week, because we teach through the Bible, we're going to get into the judgment of God. This is like the best love of God. Next week, judgment of God. But, but even in this verse, our text clearly displays that all of humanity deserves to perish. That is the default mode of humanity. That's what we're going to read next week. Because of our own sin, we, we deserve to perish. But again, while we were at our worst, God loved us and sent his son. And on the cross, Jesus perished. And he suffered under the heavy wrath of God. And the promise from God to you, from John 3, 16, is if you believe in Jesus, you will not perish. You will not perish. You will not suffer forever for your sin. And, and remember, this is the word of God. God just said, you won't perish. You can trust God. And, and the Holy Spirit makes that point in verse 17. Look what he says again. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved. And in case we were like, I really? He says it again in verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Three times, three verses. If you believe in Jesus, you are not condemned. You will not perish. Jesus came to save you from perishing. Paul begins the greatest chapter he ever wrote in Romans 8 with these words. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you trust in Jesus, you are not condemned. You will not be judged for your sin. Jesus was judged for you. That is a promise of God.
And, and it is so important. This, this comes up in verse 16, 17, 18, and the whole New Testament, because we forget and we have an accuser who says, well, you just sinned today, so you probably are going to perish. And we have our own consciences that lie to us. There's no way God could love me because look what I have done after I became a Christian. We need the word of God in us with these promises. No, I believe in Jesus. I'm safe. God promised me I'm not going to perish. We need that every single day. I am not going to perish. I'm safe in Christ. I am not condemned. And then our verse ends, they shall not perish, but they shall have eternal life. That means the love of God is a sustaining love. The love of God just goes on and on and on. It gives us new life, eternal life. And you maybe have heard this, that eternal life is not only the quantity of life. It's not just you're going to live a really long time. It is that. But it's also, it speaks of a quality of life. You will have true life, an eternal kind of life, a spiritual life. You will be born again. You will have a new relationship with the living God. And that kind of life will satisfy and sustain you through this short life. And it will satisfy and sustain you for eternity. Pastor John Calvin said this. Uh, didn't quote it. Our minds cannot find calm repose until we arrive at the unmerited love of God. That's quality of life. Do you ever want calm repose? Oh my gosh, all day long. All day long. And do you know where we find that? In the eternal quality of life that we receive from the love of God. I'm loved by God. I'm loved by God. It sustains us. It calms our minds. It calms our hearts. It anchors us. It's a strong tower we can run to. I am loved by God. Listen, we, we all know um, the effects of an unloved person. We know the effects of an unloved dog. It love changes someone. And we have this infinite, eternal love available to us today, tonight, tomorrow, just to be feasting on, to be drinking from. That changes the quality of our life right now. And it will continue to do so forever. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I want to close briefly with just three really practical things for us together. Uh, The first one is this. We need to feast on the love of God every day. Let it sustain you. We need reminding look for it when you read the Bible. Did you know I read the Bible for 21 years and I didn't know that it was about the love of God? Listen, it's on every page. Look for the love of God as you read the Bible. Uh, I think I already said this. I've said it like 100 times. I have 
never enjoyed preparing a sermon as much as this one because my soul just got to feast and rest on the love of God all day long. And then I would, you know, something would happen and I would be all over the place and then just, oh, the love of God, the love of God, the love of God. We need to feast on the love of God. Listen, we need reminding, we will fail this week. We will sin this week. We don't have to, but we, we will likely fail. And what we need to remind ourselves is, is I'm loved by God. I am still loved by God. He died on the cross for this week and for next week. I still need, I, Bo, Beckendam, need God's love right now to sustain us. And one other thing, this, look at this glorious truth that as you feast on the love of God, look what Paul says in Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You have been so loved by God that he would give his son for you. He's gonna care for you. Remind yourself of the love of God today and tomorrow. Keep feasting on the love of God. The second uh, piece of application is this. We are to model our love after God's love. Look at 1 John 3, 16. This is awesome. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If you have received this love, you are to model that love all day long. That is proof that you have received this love. And so let me just ask you, is your love a sweeping love? Is it a sacrificial love? Is your love a forgiving love? Are you so concerned for the lost because they don't know the love of God? Let the love of God shape your life and your love. We are to be this kind of John 3, 16 people that we would love others. You know, one of the ways in the season of our church right now is, is we're restarting home groups. This is a really significant way that you can like up your ante in loving the people of God and being receiving the love from the body of Christ and then serving and giving your love to others. As we have those cards to serve, that's another way that we can model our love after God's love. Would we, would we model our our marriages and our friendships and our working relationships after God's love. And then the third thing is this, love God in return. Good Deuteronomy 6.5 says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. In 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. So as we even head into this time of worship, this moment of communion, we need to ask God, God, where am I lacking in love for you? Where has my love for you grown cold? Do I seek you? Do I sacrifice my life, my time for you? Do I obey you and walk in your commandments? Jesus says, that's the love of God, that you would obey God. God, where am I lacking in love for you? 
Jesus, thank you for your great love for us. Lord, that we would take a step or two in growing to know how high and wide and deep is the love of God this morning. Lord, would it, would it get deeper into our, our minds and our hearts exactly where we need it? Holy Spirit, you are able to apply these great words to us. Please, Lord, speak to us, encourage us, save us, lead us in repentance, assure us of your love for us. Move us to forgive and love others. Move us to have your kind of love for the lost. Move us to be like Abraham who say, God, you have my whole life. There's nothing in my hands that I I will not give to you for you have given your son for me. Would we obey you? Would we become more holy and obedient as a church? And Lord, even now as we we just sing of your love, so we're going to be singing of your love for a really, really long time. And I ask right now that your spirit would just pour a little more of the love of the Father into our hearts. We could pour our love back to you in worship. That we would bow and kneel before you, God. Who are we that you are mindful of us? Who are we that you would send your only son for us? Have your way with us, Lord. We love you.